0: This is The New Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. It brings me great pleasure to welcome Larry P. Arne, the Churchill Scholar and President of Hillsdale College to the podcast. Dr. Arne, welcome.
1: Great to be with you, James.
0: On April 28, The New Criterion will honor Dr. Arne with the 2022 Edmund Burke Award for Service to Culture and Society. We could not imagine a more deserving recipient of this award during the magazine's 40th anniversary season. Here at the New Criterion, we are hosting a year-long series called Western Civilization at the Crossroads. Dr. Arne's Hillsdale is one sign, at least, pointing us in the direction of cultural recovery. Dr. Arne has transformed Hillsdale into a beacon of educational excellence at a time when higher education is otherwise in terminal freefall. A school of 1,600 students in Michigan, Hillsdale, has attracted the attention of millions of Americans as it serves as a national model for an educational institution rooted in classical American values. Justice Clarence Thomas has called it a shining city on a hill. As he runs his school, Dr. Arne is also at the center of a national conversation on education, freedom, history, and the American story. Recently, he has expanded his curriculum on the Western tradition to secondary school education. Two dozen schools in 13 states have partnered with Hillsdale and the state of Tennessee is now set to expand the school's 1776 curriculum to 50 charter schools, a big move that recently caught the attention and raised the concerns of the New York Times. To our viewers, listeners, and readers, please consider joining us on April 28 as we honor Dr. Arn and celebrate 40 years of the New Criterion. Visit newcriterion.com slash gala for more details. Even if your date book finds you elsewhere, I hope that you will consider making a gift in honor of Dr. Arn and this very special occasion. Dr. Arn, the title of your April 28 talk is Consistency in Politics. Now, without giving it away, can you
1: share with us a bit of what you have in mind for your presentation? Uh, mostly, I have in mind teasing Roger Kimball, who runs that outfit there. Uh, uh, Consistency in Politics is a essay, one of his best, by Winston Churchill. And uh, it gives an account of the changes in the careers of Edmund Burke, who was against the French Revolution and friendly to the American, and of Uh, who else, of uh, William Gladstone and of uh, Joshua Chamberlain. And he excuses two of those guys and condemns one of them. And those are huge changes. Well, Roger is uh, a highly cultured man who, like you, wears a bow tie. And uh, he has joined the list uh, in support of Donald Trump. Uh, Isn't that odd? You know, he reads his Montesquieu and his Montaigne, and he writes about, his, uh, his essays are littered with quotes from, the demonstrate erudition, and, uh, and then Donald Trump was okay with him. So how can you explain that? What, you know, and that's, uh, it sounds like an unusual thing, but if you know anything about the history of politics, it's actually a very common thing. So I'm going to talk about that. Well, we really look forward to that.
0: And. Conservatives like to talk about creating parallel institutions to challenge establishment dogma, but you've actually done it at Hillsdale, in turn bringing the ideals of the school to the national stage. What advice would you give to like-minded institution builders?
1: Uh, Well, uh, I've been in the railroad running business for most of my career, and uh, I figured out some things about it. Uh, mostly derived from Aristotle and Winston Churchill. Uh, It's hard to be good at more than one thing. And you should do that as well as you can. And you should do it as much as you can. So Hillsdale College was founded to teach. Uh, uh, There are four things that it was founded to to teach. The the, the, the books and and, uh, practices that help us understand freedom, faith, learning, and character. Well, if you get good at teaching one of those things, then you should teach everybody who wants to learn, if you can. And so we do online courses, and and then we started doing these charter schools. It's uh, uh, it turns out it's hard duty. Uh, first of all, we don't take any money from the government, and charter schools are funded public, f- publicly funded. So that means these charter schools can't give us any money, ever, and uh, they haven't. Uh, and so what do we do? Well, we've spent 10 years, in one way, we spent our lifetimes developing a thorough curriculum for K-12 education. We've developed it with our faculty and among the staff of the, of the K-12 office and with the teachers and headmasters in the schools. And it's tested and it's uh, staged. Uh, it turns out that uh, education is not hard to understand it's just hard to do and so one of the things that's hard about it is you have to get things in the right order uh, as a kid grows up there's uh, prerequisites for all kinds of things you got to do those before you do the thing and so we've worked all that out and it's become very developed and uh and you know one part of it you mentioned is a civics curriculum called the 1776 curriculum and that's uh, you know, that's, by the way, the controversial part. Uh, the New York Times, uh, you know, which you mentioned is the latest of our enemies. Um, it's a, I like to say it's a sign we're becoming important and we'd rather really rather not be. Uh, they want us to uh, they want to portray us as, as in opposition to the 1619 project of the New York Times. And I'll just mention of that project, the Dean of American history, the, the, the leading scholar in the field is a man named Gordon Wood, who is a student of his of the predecessor Dean, Bernard Bailyn, And Gordon Wood has said of the 1619 Project, not a single colonist ever wrote what they say is the main point of the founding of America, which is to perpetuate slavery. Not, not one ever wrote it. And that means there's not a shred of evidence for it. And you don't need to counter that. You just need to present the evidence. And the evidence is rich and great and tragic and triumphant, all that. So, you know, you uh, if you know what education is, and you think about it a long time, you'll figure out that there are a few simple things a kid needs to know. Uh, they, first of all, they, they need to do the, the skills that only human beings have. In education, those are called reading, writing, and arithmetic. You got to get really good at teaching those things. Uh, and you can be. I argue we are. I think I can prove it. But then after that, they need knowledge. And what do they need knowledge of? They need knowledge of the natural world and of the human world. And the human world is in history and philosophy and literature. And and the natural world is in the sciences. So you gotta get good at those things. The controversial part is civics or history. Well, why is it controversial? Uh, Teach it all. Uh, You know, you read Thomas Jefferson, and you note that he wrote the the greatest declaration of freedom in history, and he was a slaveholder, and he didn't let his slaves go. Kid needs to know that. In addition, needs to know, Thomas Jefferson sponsored the first great act of liberation, the Northwest Ordinance, uh, and guaranteed that the land where I live, the Northwest Territory, never had slavery in it. Thomas Jefferson never, he never spoke of slavery, except to condemn it. Now that's a little complicated, isn't it? And that means that, isn't his life like ours? Uh, You can't do everything you think is right. Uh, Nobody even intends everything right. And if you do these cookie cutter figures, he was all evil banish him then kids don't learn anything from that whereas what they should learn is even great people have trials and they become great to the extent they overcome them so yeah that's and so that's the approach to civics uh american history which is what you study when you study civics that all happened in the past it can't be changed so it's good to study it. You can figure it out, right? Think about it and once you know it, whatever you know, you know. So anyway, that's, that's what we do. And it is very controversial. Uh, and uh, I refuse to be depicted as opposing the narrative of the 1619 project with our own narrative. We don't have one. Uh, the narrative is provided by the subject matter. Well, exactly right. The New York
0: Times, the purveyor of the 1619 Project, and with its own school curriculum, calls the 1776 curriculum overly positive. One critic says that the curriculum is wrong to suggest that American ideals will overcome whatever evils may be there. But I wonder, hasn't American history in fact shown just that, and to suggest otherwise would seem to be the counterfactual history?
1: Yeah, well, you know, first of all, We don't actually say that, Uh, but it, it is true that if anything can overcome evil, it is the principles of good. And they are the ones that do when it happens. And, you know, America is an imperfect country. It's hard to argue that it was not founded according to perfect principles, at least nearly so. And so, you know, the, the doctrine, all men are created equal, which means, for sure, women too, everybody. That's only a tautology, right? It, all, it, it, all, it, all, it only means everything that's a man is equal to another thing that's a man. And they're all different from horses. And all horses are created equal too. Uh, Jefferson writes, last serious letter of his life, Some are not born with saddles on their backs, nor other boot and spurred to ride them. That means we don't get to ride our fellow human beings around on their backs. It's wrong to do that. It's never justified. See? And so what's wrong with that argument? That argument is a beautiful argument. Our application of it is always imperfect. You know, Lincoln writes this lovely thing. He, He, uh, he says that the electric cord that unites Americans is this principle of equality in the Declaration of Independence. Uh, it unites the hearts of liberty-loving men everywhere, always to be, now I'm going to paraphrase, striven for, always to be sought after, never to be wholly, uh, perfectly attained. So there you go, right? Uh And, you know, the New York Times, are they perfect?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you fought in the trenches of American education for a long time. What do you imagine will be the future of our legacy institutions? Is there a way to set them on a more classically liberal path?
1: Uh, uh, There's an old joke about Pope John Paul. I'm not a Catholic. I think Roger is. But uh, he set out to... uh, what he set out to do he set out to bring down the iron curtain unite with the orthodoxy in the east and uh uh reform the american bishops and he was in goring in order of difficulty <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, uh you know those <laughs> the, those great old institutions and they are great and there's a lot of really smart people in them and most of the people in them are well-meaning. They don't do what they were founded to do. That means that effectively they are different institutions. That means they're not as old as they claim to be. Uh, The word principle means both first and essential and has to mean both those things, by the way. So they're, you know, and they're very entrenched. Uh, The rich ones are rich. The others have, a lot of money from the government and they have faculties who are far gone in utopian speculations. So I don't think they're going to change fast, but I think alternatives can grow. Uh, I think we're one of them. And, uh, and, you know, it, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it's ossified, I think. And uh, I, I don't uh I was once pressed by a close friend of mine because, you know, Hillsdale college has been successful since I've been here. And this naive friend said, well, you would leave to go to Harvard. Would, wouldn't you? And that's just, I said, that's unimaginable that they would ever ask, <laughs> but no, I wouldn't. And, and he said, why? And I said, well, I wish to be successful in my work. And so you need to go to a place where you have a chance to do that. And this place remembers that it was founded by people who were classically educated preachers and deep patriots in all the right senses. And they became friends, several of them, of Abraham Lincoln. That's a great legacy. I'm I'm very proud of that.
0: Well, and you're exactly right that these uh, legacy institutions, the other ones, seem so concerned with tearing down their legacy. That seems to be their primary concern, in fact. So you're right. Something happened. Maybe progressivism, something got infected, and uh, they're not the same as what they once were and and probably will never be again.
1: Well, it's, uh, uh, you know, it's postmodern thought. Uh, right? There's a great movement. It's been going on for 200 years now. It's authoritative all over the globe. Uh, And it comes from the idea that we can master nature and become the masters of nature. And the trouble with that, and you know, we can go very far toward that. Technology is very powerful. Uh, But what would it mean to master nature? And if you did, and you could make a substitute for it, would it just be your will? What would be the justification for it? And, you know, we're not likely, and this this set out to master nature is a different spirit than to observe it, to hear from it, to let it talk to you, right? And that's the scholar's attitude. Uh, and so... Uh, this this is an exercise in power, but of course not everybody is going to agree. And now there's no nature or God to arbitrate the disputes. What can arbitrate them? Power. Uh, C.S. Lewis, very wise man, writes: uh, the conquest of nature by man implies the conquest of all men by one man or some men. And that's where we're going, right? We're going to the society of 1984 along these principles. And in the beginning, they were tempted, and now they're fueled by these utopian hopes. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, I want to turn to another wise man. Four decades ago, you served as director of research for the late Martin Gilbert, the official biographer of Winston Churchill. Your own book on Sir Winston is titled Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. What can you tell us about Churchill's statesmanship and the salvation of free government then and now?
1: Well, uh, you know, Churchill was a very unusual man. Uh, And, uh, you know, if you list up what he did, there isn't anybody like that. Uh, Maybe Cicero, you know, somebody like him. He wrote 50 books. He was in five big wars. He was brave. He held every, he was in politics for almost 60 years. Anyway, he's a very remarkable man. And he saw early in his life that this thing that I was just talking about uh, is is coming over the world. Uh, Churchill liked war and he was good at it. Spirit rose. Uh, And then he saw what it was becoming. This happened in 1897, by the way. He was on a battlefield in the Sudan. And one of the first Islamic republics was the opponent of the British. And they launched a charge with about 25 or 30,000 people across a mile of ground against a prepared position with many fewer troops that had artillery and machine guns. And the, uh, the they were called the dervishes. And the dervish that got closest to the british line got within 150 yards before he died which means he still couldn't see them very well and churchill's reflection on that was that's not fair and then think there's no courage in it that means victory might not depend upon virtue Uh, and he developed that theme all his life and then he saw that these changes in technology that they meant that everybody gets little in relation to the machines we make and especially those who wield them. And so that was the crisis of his life. He saw that all his life and he fought it all his life. And that meant in domestic policy, he fought socialism, uh, which, you know, the, the effect of it to put it in, uh, Terms like you use in the new criterion, the effect of it is to deprive you of many of the att- attributes of a human existence. They take care of your living, they take care of your children, you know, what's left for you. And then also totalitarianism, which is just an expansion and intensification of tyranny. And so he fought those all his life and he warned about them all his life. He tried to stay out of those big wars. It was his fate to lead in those wars uh, reluctantly all the time. And, uh, and he started warning, warning against socialism in 1898. And he held it off. But in the collapse of Britain through the weight of the Second World War, they beat him with an overwhelming majority. And by then he was an old man and everybody thought he would retire. He said, uh, I stay till the pub closes and I fight my corner. And he stayed until he beat him in 1951 and retired in 1955. And, uh, and so you could see Churchill's life, uh, as a, you know, a glorious triumphant March, ultimately extensively a failure. Mm. And think what you can learn from that. Mm. And, uh, you know, he's, uh, Churchill is good for one to read in hard times. Uh, he's so wise. And, and uh, he, he wrote, uh, my teacher, Harry Jaffa, wrote that uh, the best paragraph he ever wrote, I'll summarize it for you. Uh, it's, a, it's in an essay called 50 Years Hints. And it's very beautiful. And it starts out, you know, Churchill loved to write about the future, in part because he was aware we don't know anything about it. <laughs> and uh, uh, he, uh, he predicts some things, right? And he shows how in a Tennyson poem called Loxley Hall, there's a series of predictions that have come true, like air travel and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then he gets very reflective at the end and he said, Imagine. Uh, 15 or 16 generations of men, men hence I'm paraphrasing now a race of people has evolved that can live forever that can go anywhere they want interplanetary included that enjoy pleasures wider than we can ever know what would be the good of all that to them what more would we know would they know than we know about the simple questions with which humans are presented. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why are we here? What are we for? And it is the persistence of those questions that gives the best assurance that all will be well. Mm -hmm. Now he wrote that while Hitler was looming. And you wonder why in 1940, he had the courage to fight him because he thought, win or lose, all will be well, unless you join that man. Mm.
0: Yes, and there were, there were times when he thought he was only weeks away from being killed.
1: Yeah, yeah, he, uh, he wrote a speech, we don't have the speech, he said he wrote it, uh, that he was going to give when the German invasion came. And he was under advice that they couldn't defend the coast have to spread too thin, but that meant they couldn't defend London because it's down in the south. Uh, and you know they were that was bad, right? And so he 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 said that he wrote a speech called "You Can Take One With You," and he was going to give that to the British people. Now uh, there, there's many things remarkable about that. One is, uh, my wife's mother and father both served in the war with great distinction and trial uh, he was going to be talking to them and I knew them well and uh, they they would have responded they did respond but the second thing is Churchill spent his whole life trying to avoid saying things like that because that's not what life is for life is for family and friendship and speculation and love and he never forgot that And that's why he tried to avoid those wars. And it's only that one time in his life where he was prepared to say, better to die than live a Nazi. Mm. Well, listeners, viewers
0: and readers, we invite you to continue this conversation as we honor Dr. Arne and celebrate 40 years of the New Criterion. So consider supporting the New Criterion by visiting newcriterion.com slash gala. Dr. Arn, we very much look forward to seeing you in New York on April twenty eighth, and thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, James. Good
0: to be with you.